Christmas. Welcome to the DC Debrief for Friday, December 22nd, 2023. I'm your host, John Stolness, and coming up, CBN News hit the campaign trail this week, talking to Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. We'll have their interviews with us coming up. Also, Congress leaves for the year with some big items left undone, and Colorado's Supreme Court knocks Trump off the ballot. For now, at least, I'll talk with The Hill's courts and legal reporter, Zach Schoenfeld, about that, all coming up on this week's edition of the DC Debrief. Just a reminder first, everyone, as I do at the start of every podcast, tell a friend or family member about the DC Debrief. This is the best place to get your weekly recap of everything that happened in the nation's capital. And I'm going to give you the news straight up, and then you decide what to do with the information that comes through your little ear pods, AirPods, whatever it is you're using. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much wherever you get your podcast. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, if you would leave a five-star rating and a review, if you get a chance, that would help the podcast grow. All right, everybody, thanks very much for all that, and let's get to the debrief for this week. Colorado rules against Trump. This week, the Colorado State Supreme Court ruled in a surprising 4-3 vote that Donald Trump is not eligible to be on the ballot in that state because of his role in the insurrection that took place on January 6th at the Capitol. In their opinion, the court ruled that the 14th Amendment's insurrection clause applied to his actions leading up to and on January 6th, 2021. CBN's Gary Lane has more on what the justices said and what the next steps in this legal battle will likely be. Section 3 is the insurrection clause of the 14th Amendment. It disqualifies a candidate from holding office if they took an oath to uphold the Constitution and then engaged in insurrection or rebellion. Trump ignored the Colorado ruling during an Iowa campaign stop Tuesday night, but reminded voters of what he claims is an ongoing witch hunt against him. They want to silence me because I will never let them silence you. And in the end, they're not after me, they're after you. One of Trump's biggest critics in the Republican presidential field, Chris Christie, said he, quote, does not believe Donald Trump should be prevented from being president of the United States by any court. GOP presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy said he'll withdraw from the Colorado state primary until Trump is allowed on the ballot. And he's challenging the rest of the Republican field to do the same. Before the ruling, Trump attorney Scott Gessler argued the state justices should allow voters to make up their minds about Donald Trump. It's the people of the United States of America that get to make those decisions, not six voters in Colorado. Trump is set to appeal the ruling to the United States Supreme Court. The court has never ruled before on the clause, created 150 years ago, to prevent Confederates from holding office after the Civil War. Since then, it's been largely in disuse until... Uh, the January 6th attacks. If the Supreme Court upholds the Colorado decision, it's obviously the end for Trump's political career. He can't run for office again in the United States. The high court must decide if it will hear the case, and if so, it must rule by January 5th, when Colorado primary ballots are scheduled for printing. CBN talks to Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. It was a busy day on Monday for our own CBN News Chief Political Analyst David Brody. He traveled to Iowa for a sit-down interview with the two top challengers to President Trump for the GOP nomination. First, David sat down with former U.N. Ambassador and Governor of South Carolina Nikki Haley. Haley wants voters to look past the GOP primary. You look at the general election polls, Trump and Biden are pretty much head to head. On a good day, he might be up two or four points. I'm up 17 points. And she's hoping voters look at another difference. With me, 
There's no drama. There are no vendettas. Mm -hmm. There's no whining. It's just work. But rightly or wrongly, chaos follows him. But mm -hmm. we can't be a country in disarray and have a world on fire and make it through four years of chaos. We can't. While winning will be an uphill battle, she's hoping for a strong showing in Iowa and a big night the following week in New Hampshire. A new CBS poll shows that she's cut Trump's lead there to 15 points. And now Trump's super PAC is about to air campaign ads against Haley. Polling also shows Haley has an interesting challenge ahead. While doing well with moderates, she must convince a more strident base that she doesn't move to the center on key issues. In our interview, she didn't hold back. First, on immigration. We need to close the border. If there are certain areas we have to build a wall or do whatever, we do it. Like maybe toughening the illegal immigration asylum process. David, they're not vetting anybody right now. And to me, honestly, stop the whole thing until you can figure out what's going on. Not one person should be coming into our country until we know that they are being vetted and we know exactly what's happening. And regarding Israel's war against Hamas and growing pro-Palestinian protest, Haley has direct words for colleges allowing those anti-Semitic conduct on campus. We have to go to every university and say, you either take foreign money or you take American money, but the days of taking both are over. And get that infiltration out of our universities. As for social issues, she tells CBN News the government needs to make better decisions. I think there should be federal involvement. You should not have any gender-altering anything done to a child before the age of 18. Across the board, I don't think that should ever happen. And that includes any gender-changing drugs, mm -hmm. nothing that's going to permanently harm them. This plays well with the base. And with the Trump train steaming along, what would she say to a vice presidential slot? Ron DeSantis has ruled it out, says, no way, I'm not going to do it. Okay, are you going to rule it out? I don't play for a second. You're not going to rule it out. I mean, it's not even a conversation. And it doesn't matter what candidate wants me to answer it. I don't play for a second. I don't know what more I can say than, than to get them to understand that. What she wants voters to understand is that Nikki Haley isn't going away and plans to have a lot more to say before all is said and done. And David followed that conversation up with a sit-down with Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis is a man on the move, and in Iowa, he needs to quickly make a big one if he hopes to catch Donald Trump. How do you get past him? Uh, he has this Teflon quality. Trump does obviously have a certain segment that's very strong. A lot of these people, though, that come up in these polls, a lot of them are, are, are soft. I mean, they remember him, they like his policies, but they are willing to vote for somebody else. But before Trump, he needs to head off upstart challenger Nikki Haley. Both are battling it out to be the last candidate standing against Trump. How do you see the contours between you and Nikki Haley, kind of, let's be honest, in a battle to get in that second spot to take on Trump? It's like the NCAA tournament here. Well, look, she does. She, she's not going to be able to win Iowa. I can. Why is that? And the reason is, is because you have to appeal to core Republicans and conservatives. I think she really represents more of the old establishment uh, type of thinking. Thank you all for taking the time. DeSantis hopes big endorsements from Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds and top evangelical leader Bob Vanderplatz will give him a leg up. He believes his record on the life issue, taking on Disney and many other culture war fights will play well here in the Hawkeye State. Reality is this, it's an uphill climb for anyone not named Trump. And DeSantis admits that if he had a magic wand, 
he'd waive it for one big change. I mean, I would say if, if I could have one thing change, I wish Trump hadn't been indicted on any of this stuff. I mean, honestly, I, I think that, you know, from Alvin Bragg on, um, I've criticized the cases. I think, you know, someone like a Bragg would not have brought that case if it was anyone other than Donald Trump. And so, you know, he, someone like that's distorting justice, which is bad. But I also think it distorted the primary. And because it's helped last, him? Is that what you're saying? It's bo both that, but then it also is just crowded out, I think, so much other stuff, and it sucked out a lot of oxygen. That's interesting. You're saying it made him stronger in a way, and it made it, made it tougher for you and others. I think for the primary, it distorted. Primary. Yeah, I think it distorted. The hope is that some GOP voters will grow tired of all the controversies. The latest one, when Trump talked about the border and certain illegal immigrants poisoning the blood of the country. That language has been compared to a similar phrase by Adolf Hitler. He's gotten a lot of pushback on that. I want to get your reaction to, the, to those words that he used. When you start talking about using those types of terms, I don't think that that helps us move the ball forward. I would not put it in those terms. I want to stop the invasion at the border 100%, but then legal immigration should really only be for people that buy into our core values as a country <coughs> and that actually want to assimilate into American society. It's all part of a message he hopes resonates in Iowa and beyond. Now, as David mentioned in both of his interviews, both of those candidates trail Donald Trump in the polls in both Iowa and New Hampshire. Nikki Haley gaining some ground in New Hampshire, but uh, still in double, still facing double-digit uh, deficits in both Iowa and in New Hampshire. Trump, meanwhile, taking some heat for comments made last weekend at a rally in Iowa, talking about immigration and making remarks that some say harken back to similar comments and sentiments echoed by Adolf Hitler. They're poisoning the blood of our country. That's what they've done. They poison mental institutions and prisons all over the world, not just in South America, not just the three or four countries that we think about, but all over the world they're coming into our country from Africa, from Asia, all over the world. They're pouring into our country. Nobody's even looking at them. They just come in. Vice President Kamala Harris was asked about these comments on MSNBC. She reacted. Um, it is language that I think people have rightly found similar to the language of Hitler. And I think it's just critically important that we remind each other, including our children, that the true measure of the strength of a leader is based not on who they beat down, but who they lift up. As Harris and other critics of the former president have pointed out, Hitler used very similar language in his manifesto Mein Kampf, in which he talked about and criticized immigration and the mixing of races. He wrote, quote, all great cultures of the past perished only because the originally creative race died out from blood poisoning. Now, in a recent poll by the Des Moines Register, NBC News, Mediacom, they asked Republican caucus goers about those specific statements. And 42 percent of likely Iowa Republican caucus goers said that Trump's recent remarks about immigrants poisoning the blood of the country makes them more likely to support him. Now, in New Hampshire, a St. Anselm poll shows that Nikki Haley is gaining on former President Trump. Uh, New Hampshire voters, uh, Republican voters, will still support Trump at 44 percent, but Nikki Haley now up to 30 percent, closing to within 14 points in New Hampshire. Chris Christie is at 12 percent, with Ron DeSantis at 6 and Vivek Ramaswamy at 5 percent. And in the last little bit of 2024 news, uh, you have a now growing coalition of both Democratic and Republicans who are anti-Trump. Some of these groups are organizing a campaign to stop the no-labels independent group 
from putting forward a third major candidate in the upcoming 2024 election. Some of the speculation has been around somebody like Democratic Senator Joe Manchin, who announced that he's leaving the Senate. He has said he has no plans of running for president, but is leaving all of his options open. Those groups concerned that a Joe Manchin candidacy or someone like that would take votes away from Joe Biden, more votes away from Joe Biden than from Donald Trump. So uh, they are going forward with a um, with a campaign to stop no labels from putting forward a third party candidate. Combating Houthis in the Red Sea. In the wake of the Israel war with Hamas in Gaza, Iranian-backed Houthi rebels based out of Yemen have been attacking commercial ships traveling through the southern portion of the Red Sea with drones, causing damage in some cases and even holding two dozen hostages from one ship. This has caused a number of major shippers like Maersk to find alternate routes for shipping creating delays and and it could result in in hundreds of millions if not billions of dollars of commerce being affected. The stretch of the Red Sea is one of the most utilized in the world with an average of 400 ships passing to and fro at any given time which is that's roughly an area the size of Washington DC to Boston. This week, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, who was in Bahrain, announced the formation of Operation Prosperity Guardian, a multi-nation armada of navies that will provide an umbrella of protection in this stretch of water. You know, 10 to 15 percent of global trade moves through the Red Sea. So keeping that trade flowing without interruption or harassment is important for all of our countries. The Yemen-based Houthis began their attacks after Israel's invasion of Gaza and said they will not stop until there is a ceasefire. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says the new force will bring together naval assets from multiple countries. We've been able to bring together now a number of partners, including the United Kingdom, Bahrain, Canada, France, Italy, the Netherlands, Norway, Seychelles, Spain, and even more to address this challenge together. State Department spokesman Matthew Miller says additional countries like China should also come on board. Attacks on international shipping by the Houthis don't just uh, harm those countries, those, those ships and those individuals. They harm the United States. They harm China. They harm the interests of every country. And so, uh, yes, we would welcome China playing a constructive role in trying to um, prevent those attacks from taking place. Over the last month, Houthi militants have attacked or seized a dozen commercial ships and still hold 25 members of the MV Galaxy leader hostage in Yemen. The mission will position ships as an umbrella to protect as many as possible. There's going to be a whole lot of hardware in the Red Sea now, naval hardware, not just from the United States, but other ships, other ships from other nations to counter these threats. So let's see where it goes. No deal on the border. The Senate left town for the Christmas break this week, having done almost all of its last minute legislative shopping, save for that breakthrough agreement that no one can seem to find on the store shelves this Christmas season, Ukraine funding and the border. Senators working to reach a border deal continued to hold hours long meetings in the Capitol earlier in the week. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer sounded an optimistic tone. Democrats and Republicans have made important progress towards an agreement on the National Security Supplemental. While the job is not finished, I'm confident we're headed in the right direction. Finding the middle ground is exceptionally hard, and both sides must accept that they will have to make concessions, and it's going to take some more time to get it done. That reality echoed by Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. And our colleagues at the negotiating table are clear-eyed about the fact that getting this agreement right and producing legislative text 
is going to require some time. McConnell later said there were key details to be worked out on a set of border legislation that would pair with additional funding for Ukraine. Republican senators said they will not be rushed during this process. This comes as Ukraine is set to receive one final aid package this month, but no more after that unless the supplemental is passed. Ukrainian forces continue to defend against a Russian assault in the east. Ukrainians are said to be rationing ammunition and scaling back operations. Now, Senate leaders Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell released a joint statement in which they pledged action on a Ukraine-Israel immigration supplemental early next year. They said the Senate will not let these national security challenges go unanswered. Of course, there's going to be a lot of work that needs to be done to avoid a government shutdown. Remember, they have the the, the two-tiered uh, agreement that was reached by Speaker Mike Johnson and Democrats uh, right after Speaker Johnson assumed the gavel. Those dates are going to be coming up pretty quickly once Congress returns early in 2024. But the Senate has also finished voting for the year after closing out most of its year-end business. And among the last things that they did uh, was uh, take care of the rest of the military holds that Senator Tommy Tuberville had put in place and passed a temporary reauthorization of the FAA by a voice vote. Venezuelan prisoner released. The Biden administration on Wednesday announced that the U.S. has released a close ally of Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro from prison. Now, the United States is getting back a fugitive defense contractor, Leonard Glenn Francis, also known as Fat Leonard, uh, as well as the release of 10 Americans who have been detained in the South American nation. Uh, the deal is uh, the what what some are say is, some say is the boldest move yet to try and improve relations between Venezuela, which is a major oil producing nation, of course, and the United States. Um, this is the largest release of American prisoners in Venezuela's history. Um, this is coming just a couple of weeks after the White House agreed to suspend some sanctions against Venezuela. Uh, Maduro has committed to work toward free and fair conditions for the 2024 presidential election. We'll have to see how that all plays out. Now, Colombian businessman Alex Saab is uh, this individual who is very close to Maduro. Uh, it's a big concession, a significant concession uh, for uh, to Maduro. And uh, this former president, Donald Trump's administration, uh, took a lot of pride in in capturing Saab, spent millions of dollars pursuing him. Um, at one point, even they sent a, a Navy warship to the coast of West Africa uh, to uh, ward off a possible escape. So um, there's a lot of people who are angered about this among the Venezuelan opposition. Uh, they're criticizing the Biden White House for supporting and standing by Maduro, um, claiming that he has been outmaneuvering the Biden administration uh, after the Trump administration's attempts to uh, to collapse and, and topple the Maduro regime. So uh, this is a relationship that bears watching, but a, a very a significant prisoner exchange between the Biden White House and Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela. Population increasing again. The Census Bureau released its annual population estimates on Tuesday, which show that the American population growth is returning to pre-pandemic le levels. The population increased by half of a percent in 2023, it was up 1.6 million people. The population in the United States now a cool 334 billion 900 no 334 million. Golly, can you imagine 334 billion people in this country? 334 million 914,895 people. With the, really the the southern part of the country is where we saw most of the growth, according to the census. 
the South accounted for 87% of the growth. Now, we will not have congressional reapportionment until after 2030, uh, but if this holds steady, if this population increase holds steady, political power in Congress could soon be further concentrated in the South, which is quickly becoming the country's most populous region. All right, everybody, now that you've been fully debriefed, let's get into our deep dive for this week. Well, as I mentioned a little bit earlier in the podcast, the Colorado State Supreme Court issued a ruling that could really shake things up in the 2024 presidential race, potentially keeping Donald Trump off the ballot in Colorado. And joining me to talk a little bit more about what all this means and what it could mean moving forward, Zach Schoenfeld, courts and legal reporter for The Hill. Zach, welcome to the D.C. Debrief. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for for jumping in and sharing us sharing with us your expertise on this, because um, I think that uh, there's certainly a lot of different opinions coming at this from one way or the other. But let's kind of get to the the nuts and bolts of it to start things off. In short, what does the ruling here by the Colorado State Supreme Court mean? If allowed to stand, this ruling would mean that Donald Trump is not allowed to appear on Colorado's primary ballot uh, for their presidential primary next year. Uh, now, that's a big if. This probably won't be the last word on the matter. Um, but the, the justices in Colorado found that the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, uh, the insurrection ban contained in the amendment, this is a provision that was passed after the Civil War, originally used to keep Confederates from returning to federal office. Uh, the justices found uh, that Donald Trump's actions leading up to the January 6th Capitol riot amounted to him engaging in insurrection and found that under the 14th Amendment, he is then barred from seeking federal office like the presidency uh, again. Uh, so like I said, it's still a big question of whether this ruling will stand. But if it is, it would be quite an extraordinary decision kicking Donald Trump off the ballot. Now, this was a four to three decision, so not everybody agreed on this, obviously, uh, but there were three dissenting voices. What are the arguments against banning Trump from the ballot? Each of the three dissenters wrote separate opinions. The, when you combine all the opinions together, it's over 200 pages uh, of analysis of the 14th Amendment, so quite a lengthy opinion. And the three dissenters, they mainly focused on uh, one prong of this case, and that is whether a provision of Colorado election law was the right vehicle for the courts to consider this 14th Amendment challenge. As we've been talking about, that although this amendment has been around for more than a century, stretching back to the Reconstruction era, it really had for decades fallen out of focus uh, after uh, we got out of the Reconstruction era. And now Donald Trump has brought it back into the limelight. But then it creates all of these different questions of how does one even enforce the 14th Amendment? Does it need federal legislation from Congress? Uh, does state law equip the state courts to handle this? Is this something that shouldn't go in the state courts? Should it instead be decided by secretaries of state? Uh, so those were some of the issues that these dissenters got into, taking issue with the specific provision of Colorado law that the plaintiffs in this case had used to try to challenge uh, Trump's placement on, on the ballot. Uh, so their dissents actually didn't get really into the meat and potatoes of the 14th Amendment <clears throat> itself, instead taking issue with the vehicle that was used under state law. And, and the Colorado Supreme Court seemed to understand the gravity of their ruling, right? I mean, they, they're basically, they know that they're setting a precedent here and that this case is going to move to the Supreme Court at some point, probably very soon. 
That's right. They anticipated that Trump would immediately take this case to the justices in Washington, D.C. Uh, they had actually put, immediately put their ruling on pause, anticipating that possibility. And that pause will be automatically extended as long as Trump has any appeal. So he quickly vowed to appeal. So whenever that appeal hits at the U.S. Supreme Court, it, it hasn't quite yet. Uh, that immediately will put this ruling on pause. The reason they did that is because they recognized uh, that they were in uncharted territory, kicking a major presidential candidate off the ballot. No other state uh, has ever done that uh, for a major presidential candidate. The 14th Amendment uh, has been used in the past for, for some other offices, but nothing quite like the stakes of this case. Uh, so recognizing that possibility, recognizing that they're probably not going to be the last word on this, like I said, they immediately put it on pause, giving Trump an avenue to still remain on the ballot it, even as he continues to fight this all the way to the nation's highest court. So is this ruling simply about the primary or would it also include the general? So the lawsuit in the ruling was specifically about the primary election, but then because, you know, if he's banned from the primary ballot and, and can't get the nomination, uh, the general election would, would follow after that. Technically, uh, on the on paper, uh, this is only barring him from the from the primary ballot. Um, but but there's nothing that would change for the general election. So effectively speaking, this would, if allowed to stand, just ban him from being on the ballot really at all uh, in Colorado. So once this goes before the Supreme Court, and obviously we're looking into our crystal ball a little bit here, what do you think could be some of the larger issues that they're going to address uh, when they rule on this case? Because obviously, like we said, it, it will set a precedent. What kinds of precedents will it set? I mean, I imagine that getting our hands around the 14th Amendment and what it means for presidential candidates is going to be a major part of that. Is, th is there anything in addition to that? And, and how would that flesh itself out? Well, as we've been talking about, there's all of these different prongs of this case. And a lot of this is simply because a lot of these issues haven't been litigated before uh, and that we're encountering a lot of legal issues for, for the first time. Uh, so when this case does get to the Supreme Court, they really do have a lot of different avenues in which they could resolve this case. And the important thing to keep in mind is that if they reverse the Colorado ruling on any one of the many prongs that they ruled against Trump on. So finding for the U.S. Supreme Court finds for Trump on any one of these prongs, they could reverse the ruling and put Trump back on the ballot. So there's not one specific way where they can reverse this ruling uh, and rule for Trump. Uh, they could, for example, rule that the Colorado court didn't have authority to hear this case and it needed to go through another avenue. Uh, they could rule another issue in this case has been whether the 14th Amendment applies to the presidency. Uh, they could say it does not and put Trump back on the ballot that way. Or they could potentially wade into some of the most contentious issues in this case. That is whether or not Donald Trump engaged in insurrection by inciting the January 6th Capitol riot. So certainly a lot of avenues they could take in this case. Right. And the Colorado Supreme Court in their decision went about uh, stating that they, they do believe Trump's actions before January 6th, his actions on January 6th and, and afterwards did amount to insurrection, right? They they laid that out in, in, in their argument for keeping him off the ballot. That's right. They talked about at length his speech on the ellipse that morning <clears throat> on January 6th. Uh, they talked about how when the riot began that afternoon, how Trump had not, uh, did not, call off his supporters and tell them to leave the Capitol for, for quite a period of time, multiple hours. Uh, and so it was no one particular 
thing or, or event that he said. Um, but they really walked through all of the different things that, that Trump did following the 2020 election, his efforts to overturn the results leading up to January 6th. They talked about uh, his tweets uh, in late December, encouraging his supporters to come to Washington. So it was no one thing, but they said all of these different statements, tweets and actions altogether amounted to him inciting the riot. Uh, and they said that that amounted to a violation of the 14th Amendment, saying that he effectively engaged in insurrection. Uh, Colorado is not the only state who is pursuing removing Donald Trump from the ballot due to 14th Amendment concerns, right? That's right. There are cases going on in states all across the country. If you add every case up, it's actually more than two dozen. But there are a few in particular that are seen as the major cases moving through. The Colorado case has gotten the most attention because it's been on the fastest track. Uh, and so it has been seen as the likely case that's going to get to the U.S. Supreme Court first. But there are also big cases going on in states like Michigan and Minnesota. But so far in those states, those courts have not removed Trump from the ballot. This ruling from Colorado is the first court in any state to remove Trump from the ballot. And in a lot of these cases, like we've seen in places like Michigan and Minnesota, the judges have been really wary to get into some of these 14th Amendment issues. They found different ways to sidestep the case. So, for example, they found that you know the case isn't ripe enough yet, saying that they can't decide whether Trump is eligible to be on the general election ballot because he's still a candidate for the Republican primary. And they said, you got to wait till down the road. So this ruling in Colorado is really the first one to dive into the 14th Amendment, rule against Trump on every single prong and lead them to take this extraordinary step of removing him from the ballot. All right. So, Zach, last thing for you here. What's the timetable uh, for the Supreme Court to to hear this case? Do we have any sense as to when they might take this up? It's obviously going to have to happen before the 2024 general election or the Colorado primary, I would imagine, gets underway. Under their normal procedures, this is a process that could take weeks, if not months. So Trump will file his appeal. The other side, under the normal timeline, would have 30 days to respond. Then the justices will decide if they actually, they'll, they'll rule if they want to take up the case. Uh, most legal experts will tell you their hand is going to be forced here to take up the case. And then they actually have to consider it in a process that could take months. So the big question becomes, does any side here ask them to expedite the case, mm -hmm. knowing that, as you're saying, the 2024 election is fast approaching uh, and maybe, you know, some of these sides want these issues to be resolved sooner rather than later. So it's possible that this case could be sped up and, and these normal timelines that we've been talking about don't make sense. Um, but if no one does that and the normal timeline holds, it could still be months before we see a ruling from the justices in Washington. Well, Zach, I really appreciate you unpacking all of this for us and helping to distill it down. And so we can uh, so we can understand exactly what the stakes are here and, and what the different arguments are going to be. Folks, uh, make sure that you're checking out everything that Zach Schoenfeld is writing for The Hill by going over to thehill.com. Zach, thank you for coming on the D.C. Debrief. Thanks so much for having me. All right, gang, and now it's time for the closer. And we'll just take a look back at the House of Representatives and uh, some of the accomplishments or the, the I guess, critics would argue the lack of accomplishments uh, in the House this year. In 2023, the Republican-led House passed 27 bills that became law, despite holding a, a total of 724 votes. That, according to the Bipartisan Policy Center, is more voting and less lawmaking than at any other time over the last 10 years. Uh, the House held in back in 2022. By comparison, the House had the House held 549 votes, so 724 last year, 549 in 2022. And according to the House clerk, the House passed 248 
of the 549 votes as compared to 27 of the 724. What, ha- what did they pass this year? Legislation to suspend the debt ceiling and set federal spending limits, which again, of course, was, was highly rancorous. Um, also, two temporary spending bills to avoid government shutdowns. Also, the, uh, the must-pass annual military policy bill although it's not clear if President Biden is going to sign that into law. Uh, So, of course, you know, the raw number of laws passed, it's not always, you know, exactly how you want to look at this sort of thing. It doesn't necessarily um, give you a good picture of exactly how productive a a Congress has been. Sometimes you have a big bill with a bunch of smaller things in it that in some other years might have been uh, itemized out. And so you have a lot of uh, small bills as opposed to one big bill. Um, But uh, in 2013, when Republicans controlled the House and Democrats controlled the Senate, so a very similar situation, the exact same situation is now, the House passed 72 bills that were signed into law. So um, it it is an interesting number when you look at it. 27 bills became law this year, despite holding a total of 724 votes. Now, many of you will argue, of course, that there are many members of Congress, and maybe many of you feel this way, that simply passing laws is not necessarily a sign of production, and that sometimes it's it's a member of Congress's job to stop certain laws from being passed if it's something that you don't agree with. And so um, certainly there are two sides to come down on that particular issue, but just looking at the raw numbers, when you look at the number of laws passed to the number of votes taken, the gap is the largest that it's been in the last decade at least. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the DC Debrief. Again, please remember to smash that subscribe button on your phone to subscribe to the podcast. We're on Apple Podcasts, we're on Spotify, and wherever else it is you get your podcast. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll talk to you next time right here on the DC Debrief. Thank you.